Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 330 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the worlds of AEW and NXT. But not only that, this week, first time ever, the Silver King is going deep on Ring of Honor. They had a Death Before Dishonor pay-per-view over the weekend, and it was actually the first one that I ever got to watch from start to finish. Now, we will do an analysis of that show. We're not going to go through every single match, but we are going to cover the vast majority of them because so much of it does relate to things currently happening in AEW. So suffice to say, as I did this past Tuesday for our last WWE episode, we have a loaded edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast for you today, but I would be remiss if I began any episode of this show without reminding you that Getting Over is all about So please drop those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and then on Apple, also leave a written review. Those reviews are so important to the growth of this show. And every time you guys leave a five-star review on Apple, we will read it live right here on the show. I did three on Tuesday's show. I really appreciate those of you who jumped and did it after my last request. But I want to get to a nice big number of reviews so I can stop asking for those. I can just ask for the ratings, which are much easier to do, but we are nowhere near that number yet. So please drop those five-star ratings on Apple and Spotify and those reviews on Apple. I would appreciate it greatly. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, and there is no better week to do it than this week because we will have a live Twitter Spaces show for you on Saturday, immediately before WWE SummerSlam. We call it a WWE SummerSlam pre-show. It'll begin at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. It'll go anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, and we will not only preview the entire SummerSlam card, which did get dinged a major match this week, uh, but we will also open up the lines for your guys' questions and comments. You get to interact with us, and it's a really fun way for all of us to talk and chat with each other ahead of major pay-per-views, premium live events, whatever you have to call them. Uh, Also, we tweet live during all the major shows and we offer pre and post show polls ahead of those events. That way you guys can interact with us and your votes, your expectations, your final grades can be part of our instant analysis episode. So yes, I did mention we had a big WWE episode on Tuesday. It actually right now is on pace to be our most listened to regular WWE show. In other words, not an instant analysis, not a news instant reaction, just a straight up normal Tuesday show. It is on pace to be our most listened to episode ever. And that's largely because the main topic of the show is Triple H, Paul Levesque stepping in as head of creative for WWE, something the Silver King has been begging and and praying would happen uh, for six or seven years at this point. I used to say all the time, give Trips the book. My former co-host, Brian Campbell, used to say all the time, Give Trips the book. Guess what? Trips has the book. So obviously I was excited. Not only did we discuss all angles of Triple H leading creative, I also answered 16 different questions from you, the listeners, uh, pertaining to that topic. So I think as in-depth of a conversation as could potentially be had on this major WWE move was had on Tuesday's show. Why do I mention that now? 
I want to make sure for anyone who doesn't normally listen to that show, you go back and listen to that episode, which also contains our WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. So an absolutely loaded show on Tuesday. And as I already mentioned, we're talking Ring of Honor, AEW, and NXT. That means we have an absolutely loaded show for you right now. And I'm not going to waste any more time getting into it. We are going to begin today's show largely with AEW and Ring of Honor. We're just going to kind of do... Uh, those back-to-back, and then we will get into NXT. As always, all of our episodes here at Getting Over have timestamps in the descriptions. So if you don't want to hear about the Ring of Honor show, if you maybe haven't seen it yet, um, or if you just want to jump to NXT, all you need to do is hit the description, find the timestamp, and jump to it in the episode. But as I always say, I really hope if you're already listening to this show that your plan is to listen to the entire thing, because even if you don't watch NXT or even if you don't watch AEW or Ring of Honor, it's really good to know what else is happening in the wrestling world. We are going to start with the Ring of Honor Death Before Dishonor analysis. As I said, I am not breaking down every match on the card, just the ones that I found the most important and and also those that pertain to things that happened in AEW. That's really how I chose it here. Uh, And I do, we need to start with what the main event of the show was, the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championships, FTR against the Briscoes, best two of three falls match. Now, this had a 60-minute time limit. Dax Harwood took a slingshot into the corner post and ate a doomsday device as Cash Wheeler was held out of the ring with the Briscoes getting the first fall. It was a bit sudden, but I also kind of felt it was appropriate given the stipulation as it immediately raised the stakes for the remainder of the match. You didn't have to worry about when the first fall would happen. They later hit a redneck boogie, I almost called it a wreckneck boogie, a redneck boogie, a razor's edge into a neckbreaker, a great move for a 2.5 on Dax. Cash got the hot tag to a nice pop and hit Mark with a gory special for a false finish. Jay hit Cash in the face with a ring bell for a 2.5. Then he ate a Spicoli driver and elbow drop with Dax breaking the fall. Dax put Mark into the steps with a flapjack, then got a blind tag to beat Jay with big rig for the second fall. This was more telegraphed than the first, but I thought it was appropriately so. Mark hit a blockbuster off the apron. FTR avoided a doomsday device with Dax KOing the referee while brawling with Jay. He hit the J-Driver for no count. FTR escaped a doomsday device and hit Big Rig again. Jay flew out of the corner, but the referee was very late for a two count. He also bit a blood cap, I think, so the referee started bleeding from the mouth. Now, commentary sold this as the first ever Big Rig kickout, and that is technically true, but it only happened because of a very long delay in the count from the referee. The Briscoes hit the doomsday device with Cash breaking the fall. Dax and Jay boxed each other. FTR grabbed hands to avoid tapping on dual submissions. Cash caught Mark on the top rope for a back body drop through a table outside. Mark's head basically hit the edge of the table, but he was totally okay, which was lucky. Jay then caught Dax with the Jay driller inside for another near fall. And finally, Dax took Jay off the middle rope with an avalanche pile driver, only covering with his legs on Jay's arms for the 1-2-3 to win the best two of three falls match. After the bell, FTR called the Briscoes into the ring for an ovation and handshakes. Dax said, motherfucker, I love pro wrestling. He cursed a little bit more before saying top guys out. Claudio Castanoli, Wheeler Yuta, and William Regal then came out after the bell, which kind of insinuated a challenge. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, Before I break down the match, I wanted to make sure I watched their first fight this year, the Briscoes and FTR, because a lot of people were saying, hey, it's the match of the year, or at least the tag team match of the year. I wanted to see that before this show, That way I could compare and contrast the two matches, obviously. And plus, if it's a great match, I want to see it, regardless of whether there's a rematch. So I did watch it. Uh, I gave it 4.5 stars and an A, their first match. It was very good. I felt 
overrated by other critics who gave it five stars. It just wasn't at that level for me. I say that as a frame of reference, as I noted. This match was exceptional. Old school, hard-hitting tag team wrestling, three really strong falls and a great storyline that weaved throughout the entire match that included references to not only their prior match, but prior matches that they've had with different opponents. It's really all you could want from a wrestling match or main event or a tag team match. But here's what we did not get. A crescendo leading to a climax finish or a tag team finish to a tag team match. It ended with an extended single sequence. I also felt like the crowd didn't really do the match justice with the Super Card of Honor fans much more boisterous as far as I was concerned. So this was extremely well wrestled. It was a paradigm of what tag team wrestling should be. And that makes it an A-plus match for me. However, I don't agree with Brody King, who jumped on Twitter and called it the best match I've ever watched. Didn't even come close to that for me. And I don't agree with many others who went apeshit for it and thought it was some revolutionary match. So I'm at 4.75 stars, which is still still an exceptional rating. I mean, I'm, I'm not downplaying it. I'm just telling you I was not at five stars or better for it. Um, is it on any of my best ever lists? No, it's not really close to that. Is it in the match of the year conversation? Absolutely a finalist at the midway point of 2022. I would say this is in that conversation. It replaces their match from Supercard of Honor. I did think it was better, clearly by giving it a quarter point higher. This will be the FTR Briscoe's match in the match of the year conversation for us. Will it be match of the year? I don't know. I mean, right now, I at least at a minimum have Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins um, from Hell in a Cell rated higher, but there's plenty of year left. I usually rewatch matches before I do those votes at the end of the year. Hopefully you guys do as well. You all will be able to contribute and voice your opinion in our end of year voting in you know five months from now. Um, but it was a damn good match, a great main event, and very worthy of the praise it deserved, even if I don't necessarily agree that it was next level. It was still great. I just didn't think it was next level. Uh, we had a Ring of Honor World Championship match, Jonathan Gresham defending against Claudio Castagnoli on Rampage. Uh, Claudio said a world title is the only thing that's eluded him, but he's deserving of it. It was really low energy. And then he danced in the ring after the promo, which was just odd. I thought it was strange also that AEW and Ring of Honor rushed the never a world champion angle with Claudio like one month after he was hired. That's something you build over, you know, at least six months, but six months, a year, he goes after it. Maybe he loses an AEW world championship opportunity. Then he gets the Ring of Honor chance and wins. I just, the whole thing felt really rushed to me. So this match opened the show, Gresham and Claudio. Uh, William Regal joined Claudio. Gresham entered without his headgear or any emotion. It was technical, the match, as expected, but also really slow and low energy. Gresham hit a German suplex bridge for a near fall. Claudio hit a pop-up European uppercut, discus lariat, and hammer elbows, plus a Ricola bomb to win in 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Confetti immediately went off, and then Claudio got some chance walking backstage. So starting with the good, obviously it's awesome that Claudio Cesaro won a top title for a promotion. I can't stress that enough, but honestly, that's my only positive. Like I fully expected this to be a banger and the match was like three stars B minus at best, massively disappointing. Gresham looked like he wanted to be anywhere else in the world, but in the ring and the finish was both sudden and kind of uneventful. And then there's the hot shotting of the title onto Claudio when, again, not having won a world championship was the one interesting storyline 
that Claudio had joining AEW. Now, winning the AEW world title is the equivalent of winning the WWE or Universal title. Winning the Ring of Honor championship, it's the equivalent of like winning the NXT 2.0 title or the Intercontinental Championship. Meaningful, not as meaningful as it used to be. So I'm not going to be jumping on the CAEW is treating Claudio better train. Uh, that's not going to come from me. It's just kind of something nice that happened for the guy. And I think that is deserving of praise, but not too much praise. Even bigger of an issue was there was no follow-up on Dynamite. Claudio just won this title. You, you're still promoting Ring of Honor on Dynamite and AEW television. Why the hell was Claudio not out there? Why the hell was Wheeler Yuta not on Dynamite Wednesday? And why weren't both of them on there with FTR coming out of that match? Why I don't understand why you wouldn't promote how great the FTR match was. People, you need to go out of your way to see this. Show Claudio and Wheeler Yuta walking out afterward. It, it just was a huge blank spot on AEW television this week that I could not understand. Now, regarding Gresham, Fightful reported Sunday that Gresham has not only asked for his AEW Ring of Honor release, but he did so before the match when he cussed out Tony Khan, giving the hotshot booking of the match, taking the title off Gresham, and the short time, 11 minutes for a world title match, it's kind of tough to blame him, right? If released, and we're about to see how Tony Khan deals with requests like this, if released, I could see Gresham probably moving to Impact sooner than later. I can't see WWE or NXT. And that's disappointing for me, all of this, because I, a couple weeks ago on this podcast, I told you guys, I was really starting to like Jonathan Gresham. I thought he cut one of the best taped promos that has ever aired on AEW television. And now here we are two weeks later and he's requesting his release. So just very disappointed start to finish. We had the ROH Women's Championship on the line, Mercedes Martinez against Serena Deeb. Deeb had a really nice spear of Martinez on the apron and an awesome rollover cutter off the ropes. Mercedes answered with a brief dragon sleeper on the top rope. Martinez hit Deeb with a spider German suplex off the top. And I swear to you, it looked like Deeb broke her neck. Like it was truly lucky that she didn't. Deeb countered a surfboard sleeper by biting Mercedes' elbow before turning a tornado DDT into a serenity lock. Martinez hit an OG drop for a near fall, falling with the surfboard sleeper for the submission win and title retention. I I thought this was one of the top 10 women's matches of the year so far. Way better than the response it received from the crowd. Deeb gets a lot of respect, but she remains massively underrated. I went four stars and an A minus. Definitely a damn good match. We also had the Ring of Honor TV Championship on the line. Samoa Joe against Jay Lethal on Rampage. Lethal fought Christopher Daniels. Lethal countered uh, Angel's Wings into a back body drop and hit Lethal Injection for the win. They attacked after the bell, but Joe didn't come out to make a save. CD just got his ass kicked. The pay-per-view was Saturday. So using Rampage as a go-home show, totally fine in theory, but it also negated interest in Rampage itself from your primary audience, which is AEW fans, people like me. If they want to make Rampage a primary ROH show, maybe that's better off overall. I don't know what the plan is, but it was just weird the way they did this on uh, on Friday. So as far as the match, uh, Satnam Singh got ejected from ringside. Very slow and plotting match. Lethal escaped the muscle buster and hit Lethal Injection for a really good false finish. Joe caught him with a toss uranagi, but his distraction to avoid a muscle buster led to a belt shot to the head for another false finish. Joe countered Lethal Injection with a coquina clutch, but Lethal did a stunner escape before Joe reversed the pinning combination into the coquina clutch to retain via submission. The first two thirds of this match put me to absolute sleep. 
The finish was quite strong and entertaining. Obviously, the right booking to have Samoa Joe retain. I went 3.5 stars and a B. On rewatch, I have a feeling I might actually be a little bit lower at 3.25 stars. Either way, a B match. And lastly here from Death Before Dishonor, the pure championship was on the line. Wheeler Yuta against Daniel Garcia. The notable rule was a maximum of three rope breaks for pins and submissions per person, and there was a counter on screen to make sure that they didn't go over those. Garcia bit Yuta's ear with no action from the referee. They did a slap fight that ended with Garcia down for a 9.5 count. They countered a sharpshooter bulldog choke and regal stretch for a this is wrestling chant. Yuta put Garcia in Walls of Jericho for the only rope break at 14 minutes and 30 seconds, and then Yuta finally trapped Garcia with a pinning combination for the win in 16 minutes. Garcia refused to shake Yuta's hand after the bell. This was a really good, pure wrestling match. Like, pun not intended, but also kind of intended. And the story of using their mentors' signature moves against one another was really smart given their positions in their respective factions. The retention was the right call. I went four stars and an A- minus for this as well. Just a very fun and good wrestling match. So that's Ring of Honor, Death Before Dishonor. I did enjoy the show. Overall grade, you know, I again, I... I did kind of skip through a couple matches. I would call it a B-plus show. The wrestling would probably average out to a grade higher than that, maybe like an A-, minus. but I just didn't feel any connection to the show. I wasn't excited, uh, notably watching it, with the exception of the main event. And again, that's one of those things where WWE pay-per-views, they may have a, a weak build, and maybe the match quality overall isn't as good, but in many cases, you're anticipating the matches and the finishes and what's going to happen next. And in on this show, watching this show, I didn't really feel that way. So a B plus overall, but that's a damn good grade. I mean, it was a very entertaining show and probably more important than anything else, which cannot be said for Ring of Honor and Impact shows that I've watched in the past. I was pleased that I spent the time watching it. And again, that's not something that I normally say about those pay-per-views or special events. So with D- Death Before Dishonor out of the way, let's move over to the week that was in AEW. Regarding Dynamite on Wednesday, I thought it was one of maybe the best in-ring episodes of Dynamite ever. There were plenty of problems I had with booking decisions, as per usual, creative stuff, but there was no doubt that the wrestling was exceptional for most of the show. And the high-quality wrestling allowed me as a viewer in the moment to overlook some of those issues. Well, I say overlook, I have a podcast where I kind of need to break them all down for you. But while watching the show, I found it more enjoyable because the wrestling was so good. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Uh, The show began with an AEW Interim World Championship match. Jon Moxley against Roosh. Roosh attacked before the bell. Mox bladed less than 60 seconds into the match. And it came without a hardcore spot to necessitate it. It's just blood for blood at this point, and it's really ridiculous. Also, Roosh licked it, like licked an open wound. So there you go. There was some good strong style strikes both ways. Jose threw his tablet into the ring so Andrade El Idolo could run in and push Mox off the top rope. The Lucha Bros chased him off. Roosh hit a straitjacket pile driver for a near fall. Mox hit Death Rider, but Roosh kicked out for some reason. Then Mox won with a bulldog choke. It was a good match, even if it didn't have particularly notable moments. I went 3.75 stars B+. I know a large part of AEW's booking is just giving people matches they want to see, but Roosh getting a title opportunity was completely nonsensical. The guys had two matches in AEW, one match that wasn't a battle royal, and he got a face Mox for the title. This should have been an eliminator match, especially if Mox was going to win. Why would the title be on the line here? That didn't make any sense. Regarding the Andrade interference, 
maybe if CM Punk isn't ready for All Out, which I have to assume he's not going to be, maybe the move is for them to do Mox against Andrade. But then again, you look at Andrade and you're like, why does he deserve a match? He's not even in the top five in the rankings right now. So I'm not sure exactly why they're doing this. But obviously, if we do wind up with a Mox Andrade match, that's going to be a banger in the ring. So at least that'll be good. Immediately after the bell for this match, half of the Jericho Appreciation Society entered with Angela Parker mocking Roman Reigns' catchphrase, saying, appreciate us instead of acknowledge me. Anna Jay got to cut a 15-second promo. Chris Jericho, with a bruised and broken nose legitimately, said JAS is on a roll, and he wants his rematch after two and a half years at Quake by the Lake. Mox said he hates Jericho and his sports entertainment bullshit, but he is a goat in his own way. Mox said he'll fight him if he gets the Lionheart version, the last graduate of the Heart Dungeon. Now, I know the JAS gimmick is making fun of WWE, the whole thing, but the references are more and more forced by the week, and they're more and more eye-rolling by the week. I did love Mox trying to bring back Lionheart, but doesn't it kind of say something about Jericho's current gimmick and where he is right now? that in order for him to be believable as a legitimate competitor in matches, that he needs to bring back different personas, first Lion, or first Painmaker, now Lionheart. It, you shouldn't have to do that to feel like a legitimate challenger. The JAS gimmick, the wizard character, all this shit, it really just isn't working for me at all. Jericho was elevated to number five on the rankings last week, so unlike Roosh, at least he's deserving of a chance at the title in kayfabe. And obviously, AEW wants a big main event for that Quake by the Lake show. It's a much better look that this is happening on Dynamite instead of All Out. So I do appreciate AEW going in that direction. The biggest issue here, though, that I had was the blatant lie that Jericho is the last graduate of the Heart Dungeon. First of all, there's Natalia, But beyond her, TJ Wilson, Tyson Kidd, was the last male graduate of the Heart Dungeon. It's just not Chris Jericho. It's literally documented. There's no getting around that. So I don't know why they would throw that in there when it's literally just bullshit. Easily uh, verifiable bullshit. Anyway, let's keep going. The main event of the show was Brian Danielson against Daniel Garcia. Garcia said backstage that he was sharp while Brian has been away from the ring, which gave Garcia an advantage. Danielson came right down to the ring, stormed down, started hot at the bell. He completely missed a tope suicida basically landing on his face outside. Danielson hit a running dropkick on Garcia into the barricade. Then he hit a missile dropkick and appeared to hit his head on the canvas when he fell. He sold that as being knocked out cold. Then he sold the concussion while running the ropes before Garcia DDT'd him into exposed concrete outside. Brian then bladed. Brian hit an avalanche back suplex and kicks before selling the concussion a second time. He countered Garcia into cattle mutilation momentarily and hit a tiger suplex. Garcia reversed the hammer elbows. Brian hit a collarbone suplex for a near fall. Garcia countered the psycho knee, but Brian came back to hit it. Garcia avoided a label lock in the ropes, so Brian hit the knee off the apron. Trying to get back inside, Brian's foot was grabbed by someone under the ring. Garcia hit a pile driver and then put him in a sharpshooter with Brian passing out and losing via referee stoppage, knockout, whatever you want to call it. The interference ended up being Jake Hager, and then Hager and Jericho came down to celebrate after the bell. This was an exceptional wrestling match. I kind of want to get that out of the way. 4.5 stars, A for the wrestling. Probably one of my favorite AEW TV matches to date. I love that Brian put Garcia over. I also thought it was an incredibly smart way to make it happen with the injury cell, the interference, and a knockout used to excuse the loss. That's the type of win that can rocket someone to the next level. 
So hopefully AEW takes advantage of that momentum that you do wonder about it considering he just lost to Wheeler Yuta at Death Before Dishonor and now he's beating Danielson. But despite all of that praise, I'm not going to apologize for thinking the concussion stuff was distasteful given Brian's injury history. It also made the staff, the training staff, look awful in kayfabe given they let the match continue. They are both such good wrestlers, Brian and Garcia, that they could have worked another body part and had Brian pass out from the pain of that body part being injured instead of using a head injury, given the fact that this guy's brain forced him to retire and he seemed to suffer his first concussion since joining AEW and was out an extended period of time because of it. Now, I didn't downgrade the match rating for this. I just wish that this had been done differently. It was so unnecessary to do it. And as I said, very distasteful, given that concussions and head injuries are a serious thing, not only in general, but specifically for Brian Danielson. On Rampage, Lee Moriarty fought Dante Martin. Stokely Hathaway came down after a few minutes. Martin did a half and half Uranagi for a nice near fall. They countered O'Connor rolls into the corner with Moriarty grabbing the rope for leverage and a tainted win. Moriarty refused Stokes' business card on his way backstage, and Matt Seidel was angry after the bell, challenging Moriarty one-on-one next week. It's a fine low-card feud. The match was entertaining. The only reason I mentioned it now is because Dante Martin also had a match on Dynamite against Sammy Guevara. Martin cut a short promo on Guevara and announced he would have Sky Blue in his corner as if that was something that would matter. Uh, She did nothing. Sammy walked away after a few minutes with Martin throwing him off the ramp and hitting a flying cannonball off the stage. Martin flew all over the place. Sammy avoided the nosedive and hit a double springboard cutter. Then he hit the GTH for the win. Sky tried to stop a post-match attack. Anna ran down to beat her ass. Then Ruby Soho, Eddie Kingston, and Ortiz ran down to clear the ring. Entertaining match. 3.25 stars B, I'll say. Obviously, Sammy was the right winner. Uh, On Dynamite also, there was an FTW championship match. Ricky Starks against Danhausen. There was a short vignette for Starks that came across pretty cool. Starks sold a neck, but won a squash match with a spear. And then he asked for a real challenger. That led Hook to come out. We kind of prophesied that might happen last week. And I didn't think it would happen in one week, like right back to back. But here it was happening back to back. So we had Starks against Hook for the FTW title. Starks was surprised, obviously, by Hook's challenge. Hook hit the ring wearing orange tights like his dad. Uh, He flipped out of a hip toss and ate a spear, but Starks, instead of covering after the spear, celebrated. Then Hook countered Rochambeau into Red Rum and got the win. Starks was unable to roll out of it and just tapped out. The crowd popped for the finish, and then Starks fist bumped Hook after the bell. Now, after the commercial break, Starks was cutting a babyface promo saying his time is now. He was ready to overcome all of his recent mistakes. And then Powerhouse Hobbs blindsided him with a clothesline to the skull and a spinebuster. Taz was seemingly unaffected by the initial announcement that Hook, his son, was going to be challenging one of his other group members. It seems to me like Team Taz has been completely dissolved, but they never told us. And obviously he was on commentary for the match, so he was excited that Hook won and obviously over the moon praising his son afterward. Starks has been one of the hottest guys in AEW recently, and they had a neophyte squash him. Not only that, he looked like a moron, not going for a cover after the spear. Now, the neck injury in the first match did set up an excuse for the submission finish, but I saw people crowing about how much they loved this. No, it was was really bad booking, even with a babyface turn. Why not have Starks fight someone substantial for 10 minutes in the first match and have that person work on the neck injury? 
why not let him and Hook go 10 minutes in the second match, given the first match was a squash? Beating Danhausen doesn't help overcome being squashed by Hook. And losing to Hook the way he did was a total head-scratcher, even if you're going to turn him babyface. The Hobbs turn after was really well done in the moment, and they gave a really easy storyline, given they've lost so frequently as a tag team that Hobbs is just sick of his shit. But Hobbs is also the number four ranked singles guy right now, and he's about to be beginning a feud with a guy who doesn't have a title and who Starks should really be the one coming out of that feud on top. But Hobbs is the one who's ranked. So I think people are confusing a positive development with good booking. The booking should have been to turn Hobbs after the latest tag team loss and then have Hobbs beat Starks for the FTW title. Strapping a hook was completely unnecessary at this juncture. The guy is so young, you could have Hook eventually take the title off Hobbs. Why have him do it with Starks? It's just backwards. But again, the positive development out of all of this is Starks turning face, and it's pretty clear he's ready for a more significant program. And that is what we want to see. It just would have been way more sensible to book it the way I suggested, as opposed to the way AEW actually booked it. AEW announced its seventh official championship, a trios title, will be awarded in a tournament that concludes at All Out on September 4th. There were no additional details, as is you know usually what they do when they announce a title or tournament. Uh, the trios title has been something long expected in AEW, and given the roster size, it does make sense to have it. But it's also the second newly introduced title in like as many months, and it comes right after the FTW title, is now being given more prominence after basically not being featured for a long time. Plus, there's all of the Ring of Honor titles that are now featured semi-frequently on TV. So there's like, what, 12 to 14 titles in and around AEW at this point. That's just way, way, way too much. If they get the Ring of Honor titles off TV, this is much more welcome and it's really not an issue at all. If I had the book, House of Black would be the first champions but I would bet good money, especially given what we saw on Wednesday, that it's going to be one of the trios in the Undisputed Elite, the Elite, whatever you want to call them. On Rampage, Butcher and Blade fought Hangman Page and John Silver. There was a moment in this match where the lights turned blue accidentally. I wasn't sure what happened there. Hangman flipped out of a German suplex to the discus lariat and then hit the buckshot lariat for the win. The crowd gave like polite applause after the finish, but they barely reacted bell to bell, which is not good when Hangman Page, one of your top baby faces, is in the match. And then backstage on Dynamite, the Young Bucks were interested when they learned about the Trios tournament, which I thought was interesting because they're executive vice presidents of the company. So how do they need Brandon Cutler to inform them that there's a Trios tournament when literally like two or three weeks ago, they were talking about how they're EVPs, but whatever. They were interested. They were not interested in Cutler being their partner. Then they ran into Hangman and they wished each other happy birthday before Dark Order interrupted to celebrate with Paige. Uh, The Bucks then walked away disappointed, dejected. They didn't get a chance to catch up with Hangman more and perhaps even rekindle their relationship. So I criticized Hangman aligning again with Dark Order a couple weeks ago. I'm happy to walk that back a little bit because it was clearly to set up this storyline with the Bucks and or the Elite. Adam Cole uh, is set to return soon. AEW announced during the show that Cole and the rest of the Undisputed Elite would be back next week. Kenny Omega reportedly is on his way back soon. So there's a lot of interesting things that can be booked within this faction and around this faction. I did find this to be really well done. The only negative is I wish that AEW had not announced 
the return of Cole and the rest of the Undisputed Elite and saved it as a surprise next week. You don't have to announce every single thing that's going to happen on your next show. In the ring, Jungle Boy entered for a promo segment and Luchasaurus was right by his side. Jungle Boy called Christian Cage a pussy to a pop because he used a curse word. He also said bullshit and bitch ass, pointing out that Christian recently got divorced. Then he mimed for his ex-wife to call him. Uh, Jungle Boy said the only reason Luchasaurus was alongside Christian was to ensure no one would hurt him before Jungle Boy did. He started talking about digging his dad's own grave, which, really? Like, people do that? Okay. When Christian interrupted on video saying, Luchasaurus turned down a bright future to be a lapdog. Christian said he'd put him in a body bag right beside his dad. This did revive the feud from the dumpster where it had been the last few weeks, but I really rolled my eyes at Jungle Boy trying to force curse words into his promo for like some shock value. I wouldn't be surprised if Christian actually wrote Jack's promo because it was clearly scripted. The Luchasaurus explanation was absolutely absurd, but obviously we'll get the Christian Jungle Boy match at All Out. That should be a really good match. Like I said, it did breathe some life into the feud, but many elements of this were just eye-roll-inducing. It's the best way I can explain it. Uh, Swerve Strickland fought Tony Nese and Mark Sterling on Dynamite. As one would expect, Sterling avoided being tagged until it happened accidentally. Swerve hit a coup de grace, bringing over the top rope onto Nice, who was draped off the apron onto the floor. Really cool spot. Swerve kicked Sterling in the head and got the win in a few minutes. After the bell, Keith Lee was shown knocked out cold backstage with Josh Woods standing over him holding the title. Nice then blindsided Swerve and picked up the other belt to stand tall in the end. So this guy, Josh Woods, who... I don't think we've ever seen on TV other than a, like a 30 second video clip that aired before this match is now going to feud with the champions alongside Nice, who has not done anything of significance since joining AEW. Now I see they're doing the trios tournament. So AEW clearly felt it's going to be down a few tag teams. I assume many tag teams will add a third and be part of that tournament, but this is absurd. They're literally throwing together a low card team that has not existed before as the first challengers for the new champions. Like, come the fuck on. This is supposed to be the greatest tag team division ever assembled. And you can't find a real team to fight these guys? Absolute joke. On Dynamite, House of Black cut a taped promo with Malachi Black focusing on Miro and Brody King challenging Darby Allin to another coffin match. How many coffin body bag matches are they gonna do with this guy? This is also, I know it's not the start of the feud, But coffin matches, body bag matches, this should be saved for the end of a major feud to ensure something never happens again. Not just a random match that you throw on a Wednesday night. It's really ridiculous. Uh, On Dynamite, the AEW Women's Championship was on the line. Thunder Rosa against Miyu Yamashita. Great back and forth action early. They stalled on a Casadora, but Yamashita powered Rosa into a German suplex bridge for a near fall. Then she caught Rosa with Black Mass for a near fall. They repeated the spot that earned Yamashita the opportunity to actually fight for the title. Rosa then caught her with a Thunder Driver to retain. Probably one of AEW's best women's matches on TV. Straight fire from bell to bell. There were so many hard strikes. It really was obvious why Rosa was wearing a mouthpiece. I kind of have no notes. I didn't Totally love the way this was set up, but I did appreciate that Rosa got beat in Japan and they ran it back, gave her the clean win. It would have been nice for her to get a promo out of the whole thing, maybe after the match, but 3.75 stars, B plus, very entertaining.
On Rampage, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter fought Sky Blue and Ashley Dimbrose. Uh, Baker hit a double underhook butterfly suplex. Hayter added a running basement lariat, and then Baker put in the lockjaw for the win. As I've theorized before, it really feels like these tag teams are being formed on purpose. This was worthless other than that zero storyline value. But women's tag team titles, it may well be something that happens. Whether that's because of Sasha Banks and Naomi or not, we will find out sooner than later. On Rampage, Max Caster and Austin Gunn had a rap battle. Imagine, the best way I can describe this is, imagine taking the New Day Usos rap battle, attempting to replicate it, and then doing as poor of a job as possible. That was what this was. Caster obviously had the far better rhymes. Half of them were about Billy Gunn. Austin actually had the better insults, even though he forced WWE name drops to Bobby Lashley, DX, and John Cena. Then there was an attack after Austin got jammed up. This whole thing was terrible. There's really no other way to put it. Awful, awful stuff. Zero point zero. And then on Dynamite, the Acclaimed said they would roast the ass boys again in a video and announce a match type for Rampage. It was maybe their worst promo ever, which is saying something because the Acclaimed is usually very good on the mic. On Dynamite, Jay Lethal's crew was talking shit about best friends when they appeared to go to them into a trios match. Who the hell wants to see that? I have no idea. And then on Rampage, there was a vignette, I guess you could call it a vignette, for Ari Davari. It was like a couple moving pictures with generic music and no words, not even a unique gimmick, no reason to care about him. Extremely strange to do it that way. So as you can tell, I really didn't like anything that happened on Rampage this week. But Dynamite, again, the wrestling carried the water for the entire show. It was so super strong and so entertaining, the in-ring action, that a lot of the storyline issues and creative issues that I had, you can kind of just brush aside and hope that they get fixed because the show itself was so damn entertaining. So a really good episode of AEW Dynamite, a poor episode of AEW Rampage, and a very, very solid uh, Ring of Honor Death Before Dishonor pay-per-view. With that, we can move to NXT, which obviously did not have the same high quality of wrestling as Dynamite, but it was a very storyline-heavy show. A lot of stuff happened, a lot of stuff developed, much of it exciting and interesting, and we will get to that right now. So Zoe Stark opened NXT to a really nice pop. She said doctors told her the torn ACL could keep her out over a year, and even during rehab, a lot of doubt entered her head. She talked about beating the timetable by four months, coming back in eight months, and how the fans' reaction last week made the entire effort worthwhile. Stark blamed Toxic Attraction for taking her out, and promised to take the title from Mandy Rose. Cora Jade on the crow's nest yelled at Stark for stealing her moment. Zoe said Cora tossing the title was disgusting. The title isn't a piece of trash. She's a piece of trash. Really good line, actually. Mandy bragged about soon becoming the fourth longest reigning women's champion in NXT history, replacing Paige. Stark wanted her deserved title match, but Gigi Dolan wanted a chance at her first. And then backstage, Saray returned to confront Mandy and wanted a chance against her next week. This is after it was announced that Mandy would defend against Zoe Stark at the Heatwave TV special in three weeks. Zoe did a really good job with her promo. It's the first time we've gotten her in like an extended in-ring segment by herself. Mandy was also far better than usual on the mic. It was also nice to see Saray back after her run in NXT UK. And it was damn cool that NXT brought back Heatwave, the old ECW pay-per-view name for a TV special. All of this just worked for me. I didn't love the idea of Saray fighting Mandy before Stark gets to, although I presume it's going to be a non-title match, and if that's the case, it's fine. But to see Mandy beat Saray before fighting Stark, you know, maybe not going to put the best taste in my mouth. Stark ended up fighting Dolan. 
Uh, she hit a sick flip over go to sleep for the win and avoided a post-match attack from Toxic only to get blindsided by Cora with a kendo stick. Roxanne Perez made the save. Way too short of a match given Dolan is a very capable wrestler. This should have been three times as long as it was. I just don't understand why only two matches per NXT episode are allowed decent time and everything else has to be short. It really doesn't make sense. Roxanne was backstage saying she accepts Cora throwing their friendship away, but trashing the title was not acceptable. She said it deserved to be treasured when out of nowhere, Medusa, well, in WWE, Alondra Blaze, showed up and literally pulled the title out of the trash to say it's not acceptable to treat it the way she did the women's title all those years ago. Then she announced a fatal four-way match next week with the winners becoming the new women's tag team champions. Those teams were later shown as Ivy Nidal and Tatum Paxley, Toxic Attraction, Caden Carter and Katana Chance, and Valentina Feroz and Ulisa Leon. Strangely, Roxanne with another partner was not part of the match. I really thought she would be, but this is gonna open next week's show and it's gonna be commercial free. Sangha backstage was excited for Feroz and Leon. The Casey's agreed with Roxy that Cora disrespected the titles and they were ready to win them. Ivy then talked shit to the KC's when Electra Lopez talked shit about their upcoming faction match on the show. Paxley slugged Lopez. Alundra then walked out with the titles like out of the arena at the end of the show when Toxic told her they're above everyone else in the division. And then she dissed them on the way out the door. You gotta give credit where it's due. This was really well done. Medusa's promo was rough, sure, but getting her on screen to pay off the trash booking was brilliant. Roxy should have been back in the match with a new partner, like I said, even if she didn't win because she didn't lose the title herself and there's nothing to lose by having her even lose a fatal four-way. She doesn't have to take the pin, but at least they're quickly crowning new champions, which obviously cannot be said for the main roster. Not only that, they're making the match commercial free, which they're telling you it's important. We want you to watch the entire thing. The Casey's need to win this. It has been long enough and it's honestly absurd that we've gotten to this point with women's tag team titles and they have not been champions. I'd book them to win. And what I would also do is reestablish the old three brand women's tag team titles. I'd have them win the titles on Tuesday and then the following Monday show up on Raw. We are now the WWE women's tag team champions. We're primarily in NXT, but we are challenging women across all three brands. Have them fight on Raw, have them fight on SmackDown. You do not need to bring the other titles back if you just reestablish these and then have them beat a team on Raw and a team on SmackDown, boom, they're a three-brand champion and you're off and running. This whole thing was really good. One of the best overall storylines that NXT has done in a while. I still think it was really stupid for them to have Roxanne win the titles and then have them vacated and then win the contract and lose the match immediately because Cora Jade, you know, screwed her over. Like maybe there was some rebooking because of what happened with Nikita Lyons. Maybe she was supposed to be the one to win the breakout tournament. I didn't love that aspect of it, but in terms of what we got Tuesday, the way they really thought it through and paid it forward, again, you really got to give them credit. I liked it a lot. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, JD McDonough pulled up to the NXT parking lot, but didn't want his usual spot because this week he's a ticketed customer, except he walked through the employee entrance. Details like that matter. In the crowd, JT told a guy eating popcorn he could choke on it. He told the timekeeper how his hammer could take someone's finger off. He shook Wade Barrett's hand saying it's degraded over time and easy to injure. Then he squeezed Vic Joseph's collarbone and basically said he could break it. He called out Braun Breaker who said they will fight at Heatwave. JD headbutted him. 
but Braun did one back. And then McDonough either legitimately bit his tongue, which I think was possible, or he bit a blood capsule, but I, I think he actually bit his tongue. There was zero heat to this whatsoever. This JD McDonough character is a total unabashed failure after two plus weeks. Like, okay, he knows how to injure people. And it's not like he's Pete Dunne, the joint manipulator, or Zack Sabre Jr., the technical wrestler. The promos have been one note. They've, there's been zero energy or excitement. This guy needed to come to NXT and get built up. Throwing a character that's not ready for prime time into a main title feud against a champion who has struggled against his most recent opponents not being exciting enough is just a horrible decision at every single level. Braun cannot catch a break, no pun intended, with his opponents. And what they're doing so far with JD McDonough, it's not just bad, it's boring. And that's even worse. I'm bored, brother. Grayson Waller fought Wes Lee. Waller cut a fourth wall promo insulting fans at home for their looks. He then hit a really cool fireman's carry Liger bomb in the ring for a near fall. Wes went on a run with a nice tope suicida, but Waller shoved him off the top rope. With the referee's back turned, Wes got punched in the back by Trick Williams, who was in the crowd wearing a disguise. Wes barely beat the count, and Waller immediately hit a rolling cutter for the win in 12 minutes. This is a spot where if this was a main roster match, we would have just gotten another count out. But we actually got a real finish here. And it made sense because it was clear last week that the Wesley-Trick Williams feud was going to continue. Fun match. Both guys got a chance to shine. Gave Wesley an excuse for the loss. I will also say this. Waller's Liger Bomb is better than any of his other signature moves. It should be his finisher. Fireman's Carry Liger Bomb. I don't know anyone else that does it as a finisher. Boom, you're good. Stop looking for it. You got it. Apollo Crews fought Zion Quinn. Cruz hit a backstabber and an almighty spinebuster for the win. There was nothing else notable about this match other than Cruz didn't use any of his prior finishers and it was really short. Zion did not look good at all in the ring. He should be way further along after two years in NXT. It's funny that his gimmick is the X Factor because he does have the X Factor. Like he has the look. He seems to have the charisma. He's the prototype of what WWE would want in a main roster superstar. The problem is his promo is not very good and he's not very good in the ring either. So they got to work on him. They got to figure something out. Solo Sokoa caught a promo while menacingly walking down a street, challenging Von Wagner to a Falls Count Anywhere match next week. It was a cool look for Sokoa, but given the heat wave announcement, that type of match probably should have been saved for a bigger show. Mr. Stone later tried to decline the challenge saying Wagner needed to think stuff through and he already ran Sophia Cromwell off. Wagner said she can go be a model if she wants. He's going to prove he deserves the street legend title. That simple bit of continuity, addressing Cromwell's departure for SmackDown, and not just addressing the departure, but addressing what she departed to do, that's treating your fans like adults. It's continuity between NXT and the main roster. Someone gets called up, they disappear, you note that they disappeared from one show and are now on the other because it's the same company. It was also a really good promo from Sokoa and a pretty decent one, I gotta give him credit, from Wagner. So I was pretty happy overall with this. I'm happy, I'm pumped is what I am. Diamond Mine fought the D'Angelo family. Tony D'Angelo backstage was pleased how everyone has kind of stepped up recently. And he said, you always have to prove your loyalty. So just because you did it in the past doesn't mean you don't have to do it in this match. Diamond Mine rallied themselves backstage saying this feud was just what they needed to get back on the same page. 
Julius Creed stepped in front of Roderick Strong into like an outspoken leadership role as he did last week. And then this was the main event with the Legado del Fantasma guys dressed up like the family wearing black tank tops and black pants. There was an eight-way brawl uh, with the Brutus Bomb taking out the entire family outside. Damon Kemp had a nice run, but got chop blocked. Julius wrecked shit with a really sick hot tag that included a leaping superplex. Brutus later hit a pounce, but ate high-low from Legato. Strong and Julius combined for pump knees and basement lariats, like taking three different guys out. That left Tony D'Angelo alone. D'Angelo then ducked a pump knee from Strong. That nailed Julius in the face before D'Angelo hit the fisherman's neckbreaker on Julius for the win. Absolute banger of an eight-man. The lack of tagging was saved for the finish, which is where it's most appropriate. Julius had one of the most insane hot tags, probably in NXT history. Definitely the most insane hot tag in NXT 2.0 history. And the storyline continuation with Strong costing him the match, but this time it was a pure accident after they teamed up so successfully during the rest of the match. It continued what is probably the best ongoing storyline in NXT right now. 3.5 stars B plus for the match, a thrilling Final three minutes of action. Go out of your way to watch this match if you can. One more note, Julius Creed really showed out here. He flashed skills that make me now believe, and I always kind of had an inkling of this, but I now believe he will be better on the main roster and a bigger star than Braun Breaker and Gable Stevenson, if that ever even happens in the longer term. He has far more upside in the ring and on the mic than Breaker. And now for me, coming out of NXT, My three guys are Julius Creed, Grayson Waller, and Carmelo Hayes, not necessarily in that order. Those are the three dudes who I think could legitimately be upper mid-card to main event talents in WWE, getting called up inside of a year or 18 months and elevating themselves to that level in, you know, two, three years, something like that. They are super, super talents. Giovanni Vinci fought Andre Chase. Backstage, Chase U was pumped up for the match. Nathan Frazier returned and asked to be the honorary flag bearer, except he didn't accompany them to the ring. Bodie Hayward held the flag, and Frazier was just sitting with the student section. The Chase U kicks and sit down your Anagi from Andre got a big pop. Some people were even standing during this match. Vinci caught Chase by his collarbone midair for a brainbuster. Then Chase caught Vinci with a double underhook Liger bomb for a great near fall. Vinci finally hit his last ride Liger bomb for the win. Vinci attacked after the bell, and Frazier made the save. This match was a freaking blast. There were two This Is Awesome chants, one deserved, and it was probably Chase's best match in NXT. Vinci's gimmick is working extremely well. Chase is over like Rover, 3.5 stars B for this. It was the best top to bottom segment of the entire night. Wendy Chu had a nightmare about Tiffany Stratton eliminating her from the Battle Royal. She, quote, woke up on the wrong side of the bed and cut a very short, angry promo saying it would be lights out for Stratton, Next time they see each other, totally fine. I did think it was over. I don't know why it's continuing, but you know, it's not the worst thing for both of them to just have something to do. Ariana Grace complained backstage about Indy Hartwell eliminating her from the Battle Royal last week. Indy told her to get a grip. Grace said she's a former beauty pageant queen and is not used to being around such negativity as Hartwell. She just stormed off. Ariana, by the way, is Santino Morello's daughter, in case I haven't mentioned that previously. This was fine overall. It set up a match. Hartwell, Grace... The referee caught Grace trying to use the ropes to cheat on a pinfall, so Indy booted her in the face to win 1-2-3. I'd like to have seen a finisher, given Grace is a neophyte low carder. Indy being able to beat up on someone, hit her finisher, that would have been nice. 
Axiom got a comic strip vignette explaining how each opponent is an equation he needs to solve. It was actually pretty cool, short and sweet. Kiana James did a PowerPoint presentation about what's wrong with the NXT women's division. She focused on Nikita Lyons saying she was raised poorly, doesn't have a good vocabulary, and the way she dresses is not how a woman should conduct herself these days. This was awful. Bad gimmick, even worse presentation. This is The terribleness of that segment juxtaposed with a very nice video package where Alba Fire and Lash Legend talk shit to each other made it even more apparent how bad it was. And then lastly, the dyad backstage explained how Joe Gacy has changed their lives for the better. Joe Gacy said Cameron Grimes' problem is not losing championships, but not having a father figure. Gacy said he'd be happy to fill that role if he wanted to join the schism. Again, the worst thing in NXT history. And I say that given NXT is a brand that had someone named Blue Pants in it at one point. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. And that's really it from this week in NXT. Like I said, a very big storyline episode, not just developing stuff for next week, but two weeks from now at Heatwave, which I'm very excited about. There is a rumor that there's potentially going to be an NXT premium live event the same day as All Out. That's going to be the weekend, I believe, that WWE or around the time that WWE is in Europe for Clash at the Castle. So maybe it's going to be an NXT UK show. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, But I do like that they're building stuff for Heatwave. And we'll do a preview of that next week because it's going to be interesting to see what all the titles are on the line. Are there stipulations? All that. But right now, again, if I'm WWE, I am putting the Women's Championship on Zoe Stark. That's the number one takeaway I have. I'm also putting the Women's Tag Team Championship next week on the Casey's. It's time to revitalize and refresh the women's division in NXT, and this is their opportunity to do it. And that is our full breakdown of AEW, ROH, Death Before Dishonor, and NXT. I appreciate you all once again lending me your ear holes and sitting through this full in-depth edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. A reminder about what is still to come this week on Saturday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, we will have a live WWE SummerSlam pre-show on Twitter spaces. Just be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can listen, you can participate, you can also vote in our polls for SummerSlam that day. And of course, you can follow all of our tweets, not just about what's happening in the world of professional wrestling, but also what happens live on the four major television shows every week. And then Saturday night, as soon as SummerSlam goes off the air, we will have a WWE SummerSlam instant analysis podcast where you break down every single match with grades and an overall show grade. It will be published Saturday night or Sunday morning. You can listen to it right before you go to bed or first thing when you wake up in the morning. But that is what we do here at Getting Over, our signature instant analysis episodes. And then, of course, next week, we'll be back on Tuesday with our normal WWE episode. And one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel with our latest AEW and NXT show. Please do not forget the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So leave those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave a five-star review on Apple as well. And one more reminder to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Thank you all once again for listening. That is it for today. The Silver King is now leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.